Well, good morning, Real Life Church. Um, you see a man this morning out of his comfort zones. This isn't something I normally do, but thank you to Stuart for giving me this opportunity to come and speak this morning. Normally, when I'm up here, Phil and I are talking about worship. Uh, we spoke a couple of terms ago about life kind of at work and how we balance God with um, kind of work in that sense. Uh, but this is the first time Stuart's asked me to preach on this series, so I get that out there right at the beginning. Um, so be nice to me, be kind, just laugh from time to time. If I do this, maybe have a little giggle, um, smile, feel free to go and get a cup of coffee if it gets a bit boring, or go to the toilet, whatever you need to do. Um, and if anything goes funny up there, just ignore it. There's something slightly weird going on, it's just cutting in and out a bit. Don't panic, just take it as the... The projector is deciding to emphasize a point by taking it off and putting it back up again. So just ignore anything up there. So in theory, this should be an easy start to the talk because some of you don't know who I am, so I thought I'd tell you who I am. My name's Matt. I'm married to Phil. I have two children, Delta and Blue. Delta's just turned five. Blue is two. And there are some kids who work with Phil at the moment. Um, we moved up here about three and a half years ago, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how and why we moved up um, a bit later on in the preach when I give some examples of kind of the application. So we'll, we'll hold off on that one just for now. But just to say, we moved up from Hertfordshire about three and a half years ago, kind of in the second or third wave of people that moved up. Um, and we haven't looked back since. We've loved it. It was absolutely the right decision. We love being here, part of a new church, part of real life church doing church with you guys, worshiping God together, growing together. Um, I'm an assistant head teacher in a local secondary school. Um, best job I've ever had, but hardest job I've ever had. Phil will give you testimony to that. Um, Phil is a full-time mum, but alongside that, she's actually starting um, a upcycling business on Facebook. She made the sign out there in the hallway. That's something she's sort of starting to grow now, so when the kids are at school, she's got a business to um, run and develop, which is all very exciting. So that's who we are. Um, just going to go back to the fact that I'm a teacher. You have to bear with me. So I go back into my comfort zone. Now, for me, when I stand in front of a group of people, it's either a five, ten-minute assembly or it's a one-hour lesson. So we've got kind of a choice this morning, whether we go for the five, ten-minute assembly or the one-hour lesson. There were more smiles on the one-hour lesson. So is that all right, Stuart? We'll go with that one. Fantastic. Now, um, some of you might not have been um, in schools recently, but we're encouraged to have certain structures to our lessons. Obviously, we can have a bit of creativity, but one thing we are expected to do in a lot of schools now is to have learning intentions. Sometimes we put these up at the start, sometimes we put these up at the end, but the idea is um, that it tells the students what we expect them to achieve by the end of the lesson, and throughout the lesson, we refer back to them. I'm just going to move back a little bit because I'm aware. I can't see you down over there. Is that all right? Um, so we kind of refer back to them. So I'm going to use learning intentions this morning to try and make the point of what we're saying. But I thought just in case you don't understand me, um, here are some examples um, of what they might look like. So my first learning intention might be something quite simple like this. Must be able to convert pence to pounds. That would be my thing that everyone in the class had to understand. So for the sake of this morning, I would want everyone in this room to know there's 100 pence in a pound, and if I said to you, 150 pence, you would all shout at me. 150. Okay, so well done, real life church. Um, you have achieved your first learning intention without really any um, input from me. So we've all got that. Now, clearly in a class, we have different people at different levels, and not everyone's going to make the full progression. 
So once we've got our must, we have our should. I would hope that all of you could use this fact to calculate the total cost of a Starbucks bill. So once we know there's 100 pence in a pound, we can walk into Starbucks, we can have a look at what we've purchased, and we can make sure our bill is absolutely correct because we can take it a little bit further. So we're developing, we're developing our knowledge, we're starting to apply it, and we're going a bit further. Now in a lesson, sorry guys, um, it might be that these guys focus on the must. So these guys spend an hour... Just go in, 150 pence, pound fifty. 202 pence, two pounds, and you get the idea. They focus on that. They're going to stay there. Sorry, guys. Whereas you guys over here have all gone that bit further, and you're now applying that to the context of my Starbucks bill. And then we have a could. There's always got to be an extension. So you guys are stuck with the should. We've got the must. You can calculate the total cost of a Starbucks bill. Then over here, you go a step further and you're able to help me evaluate the monthly impact of my wife's coffee shop addiction. Okay? So my dream... That's my daughter in Starbucks, sorry. Um, my dream is that everyone in my class will get up to the final bit, the could, the extension. But I know along the way, I might have sorry, left some people behind, and they might not quite be with me. So my, my aim this morning is to use the same sort of structure to go for the must, the should, the could, but I'm hoping that I don't lose you guys, I don't lose you guys along the way, and we get to the end, and we understand everything I've tried to say. So that's what our lessons are supposed to look like now. Okie doke. We're going to look this morning at John 18. It's verses 1 to 11. If you want to look it up in your Bibles, you can, but if not, it's up there behind us. So I'm just going to read through this so we know the context of what we're looking at today. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had gone, often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now, with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Jesus, who betrayed him, was, sorry, Judas, who betrayed him. I told you there'd be a slip up in there somewhere. I'll try that again. I am Jesus, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? So that is our passage. Oh, sorry, I didn't click through, did I? Apologies, but you got the idea. Okay, so that's the passage we're going to be looking at together this morning. Before we do that, I'm going to pray because I need the Holy Spirit to help me. So, yeah, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is recorded for us to, to read, to study, to learn from. And I just ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would continue to be with us, continue to fill us up, and would, would bring to life the word recorded in the Bible. Lord, I pray you would speak to us in this passage. I pray you would help us to interpret this passage, and I pray you'd guide me as I lead us in that this morning. Mm. 
Amen. So, we're going to start with the context. Jesus and his disciples are currently based around Jerusalem. They're, they're in Jerusalem during the day. Jesus is preaching at the temple. That's kind of where they're spending a lot of the time, the stories we've been hearing about. And then later on in the day, they tended to retire to the Mount of Olives. And then quite often we think they probably went back to Bethany. So Bethany is where we've heard a lot of the other stories. Um, it's where Mary and Martha, where Mary anointed Jesus, where Lazarus was raised from the dead, and we're kind of in this vicinity. Now, I'm a kind of a visual learner, so I went on Google Maps, and I just wanted to see where these places were. So I asked Google to tell me how to get from the temple to the Mount of Olives and then on to Bethany. And if you were in Jerusalem right now, you would have to follow that blue line that appeared briefly up there. It was about 40 kilometers and about 40 minutes um, to go round. Now, clearly, um, that's not how Jesus would have done it in his day. There we go. So you've got point A is the Temple Mount. Oh, I'm going to quit. Um, point B was the Mount of Olives, and point C was Bethany. It was all very close together. Take that for me, okay? Doesn't like that picture, does it? Now, they were all very close together. In reality, we're talking a few kilometers between each place. The Temple Mount, Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives, and Bethany just over there. So, it's very clear from all the Gospels that Jesus spent his days in Jerusalem, he often retired to the Mount of Olives, and then he often went back on to Bethany later on, and that's where a lot of these stories were told. Um, we know that's fact, it's recorded in lots of places. And uh, it says in Luke, every day Jesus went to the temple to teach, and each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. Again, Luke 22, then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives was a usual place that Jesus went. Um, I've got, just to help you get into the kind of picture of where we are, this is a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. My in-laws went there um, last, was it last year, this year? Um, and they went on a tour around these places, and they were actually able to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're talking here about an olive grove, on the Mount of Olives, um, and it's a walled enclosure. It was probably um, belonged to somebody who was basically a follower of Jesus, but he let them use that space so that Jesus and his disciples kind of had somewhere private to go, to pray, to meet together, um, and continue in that way. So it was a walled olive grove. Um, if you were to go there now, that's one of the oldest trees in that garden. That tree would have been there at the time of this story. So they were able to actually go to that garden and see a tree that was a couple of thousand years old, and it would have been there at that time. A lot of the trees have been replanted. Um, this is what my in-laws tell me, that they came back, um, and they found that, and they got to see those things. Now, in terms of timeline, so we know Jesus in Jerusalem. We know he was going to the Mount of Olives regularly, and we know he was going on to Bethany quite often. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, place this timeline um, as the, basically the day he was arrested was the, after the Last Supper. So the Last Supper would have been um, the Passover meal on this day, and then Jesus was arrested later that night. So again, in terms of the context, Jewish law stated that if um, on this particular day of the Passover meal, everyone observing that celebration had to stay within the boundaries of Jerusalem. So on this particular night, if Matthew... Mark and Luke have got the timing spot on here, Jesus wouldn't have traveled probably beyond the Mount of Olives because Bethany was outside the boundaries of Jerusalem. 
So although quite often he was known to go on to Bethany, on this night he probably would have stopped at that point um, and he wouldn't have gone any further because of the laws of the Passover, which there is a debate about the timeline of the story, but in my mind it's kind of just an extra fact that actually Jesus was expected to be there. It was fairly likely he was going to be there on the night um, and we kind of knew that's where he was going to be. So why is the context of this story important? It says in verse 2, Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. Okay, This was true. We've established that. We've read that in Luke. We know what was going on at the time. He often went there with his disciples. Judas knew that because he'd been with them. He'd seen them in that place regularly. Judas also would have known, if we take that timeline as correct, that on this particular night they wouldn't have travelled on to Bethany. So in a sense, this was the perfect night to find Jesus, you can turn that off, guys, if you want, if it's distracting, flashing on and off. It's not a problem. Um, So, of all the nights, this was the best night because we knew Jesus was going to go to the Mount of Olives, and on this night, he travelled no further. So, he was definitely, definitely going to be there. So, my first question to myself really was, did Judas find Jesus, or did Jesus place himself where Judas could find him? So, I think reading this passage, reading the history behind it, you know, Jesus was taking absolutely no evasive action. Does anyone here watch NCIS? Particularly the LA version, okay. Have you seen CSI, some sort of cop show from time, whatever time it might be? It's, it's quite a simple rule if you're working for someone like the NCIS or the CSI and those sort of things, that if you're travelling home in the evening from your place of work, you don't go straight there. You leave your place of work, you want to get home, you take a different route every single day. If you take a different route every single day, people can't predict where you're going to be, people can't stop you, people can't abduct you, take you away, do nasty things to you. There's an example in NCIS where I think it was Sam was, for some reason, I think because he's got a child, he was travelling the same route, and actually the car was stopped, the people knew where he was going to be. They knew at 5.30, whatever the time was, that's where he was going to be, so they knew they could set up an ambush. They could predict it because of his patterns. So he got into all kinds of trouble. And you kind of see that in a lot of these shows, that when people are following the same route, you just know pretty soon someone's going to get ambushed. Okay? So in this, Jesus was not taking evasive action. He was traveling that same route. Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Bethany. Mount of Olives, Jerusalem, Mount of Olives. It was, he was just following a pattern. It was what he was doing. He was making no attempt whatsoever to hide from anyone. Okay? Now, if you were a cop and you were trying to avo- avoid being captured, you would not do that. So again, I think Jesus put himself exactly where Judas would find him. Jesus was entirely in control of this situation. And my must for this morning was that we must know that Jesus was in control of this situation. We must know that Jesus was in control. The reason he was in control is because he is God, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But Jesus was in control. So can we have some nods if we understand? Jesus was in control. Jesus placed himself where Judas would find him. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. It tells us again, just in case we didn't believe it. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. So John really, really focuses here on the, the fact that Jesus being in that garden on that night was a sacrifice. He knew if he placed himself there, Judas would find him, he would be arrested, it would lead to his crucifixion. 
kind of questioned my feelings towards Judas at that point. Got myself thinking, you know, all this time I've been pointing a finger at Judas saying, you betrayed my saviour, you betrayed my king, my friend. I don't like you because you did that. And as I read this passage, yes, Judas did betray betray Jesus, but why was Jesus in the garden on that night? He was there because he had to be arrested. It was part of God's plan. He had to be arrested so he could go to trial and he could be crucified so that we could be set free. And that got me feeling, not from a point of guilt, but from a point of love, that Jesus placed himself in that garden that night because of me. And in that sense, it was me that put Jesus in that garden. I needed his salvation. I needed to be rescued. I needed Jesus to be arrested on that night so that he could be crucified and my relationship with God could be restored. I needed that. And it just got me thinking, should I be pointing the finger at Judas for betraying him on that night, going to where Jesus had placed himself ready to be arrested, or should I be looking at my own life and saying to me, wow, I fell short. If I hadn't have fallen short along with everyone else, Jesus wouldn't have been arrested that night. And it just kind of played with my mind a little bit, and I thought about why he was there. And actually, it's not my business to point a finger at Judas. That's God's business. God will weigh his actions. He did weigh his actions. God's um, judgment was just and true and perfect. It's not mine. And it just made me think, Jesus was in the garden that night because he loved me. He was there because he wanted, you know, we've read about the the prayer and the kind of the tussle he had with God over what was about to happen, but he was there to bring about my salvation. So, So my must was that Jesus was in control of the situation. My should is that Jesus loves me. The reason he placed himself there on that night was because he loves me. He would not be in that garden on that night, would he, if he didn't love me? Because if he didn't love me, he didn't need to get arrested. He didn't need to be crucified. He placed himself there because he wanted these things to play out so that we can be restored with him. So, we're on a journey. We must know that Jesus is in control. We should know that he loves us. Verses 5 to 9. In these verses, we read this phrase again, I am. And I remember Stuart referring to this last week as it's come up a few times throughout John. There's been seven occasions where Jesus has stated this, I am, okay? And the weight of that is the same language that we see in Exodus where Moses says to the burning bush, who is this? And God replies, I am, or I am he, I am the Lord your God. Um, Isaiah, we read it again, God stating, I am, I am he, I am the Lord your God. And here Jesus is reinstating that authority, that sovereignty. It's the same the same language. I'm not an expert on language. You can talk to me about it later. You can teach me something. But it's, I'm pretty convinced it's the same language. Um, it's written in the Bible, isn't it, in funny capitals to emphasize that as well. It's the same language. God, um, Jesus is stating here his sovereignty. He is saying, I am God. I am God. And, and that's really important because when we said, why was Jesus in control? Jesus was in control of the situation because he is God. And God is fully in control of this. Um, kind of as an aside in this, this passage here, there is a question as to whether the guards from the temple, the soldiers, actually understood everything that Jesus was saying at this point. Did, did they understand the fullness? Because we read this story, it's quite obvious to us 
because we've just read the Old Testament. We've just read the account of John. We've seen this word, I am, I am, I am. As we read this passage, we can see that Jesus is reinstating, restating, declaring his sovereignty. I am, I am. And he's stating it time and time again. So we can see that. But for them, it's said in John 7, when the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. And there's kind of these accounts, and these were probably some of the same temple guards coming to arrest him on this night of not fully understanding. The disciples didn't fully understand, did they? And they were with him all this time. There was bits they didn't get about what was going on. Um, And kind of if they had fully understood, it made me think, well, what would their reaction have been? They were coming on that night to arrest him, because of his blasphemy, weren't they? They were coming to arrest him because of his claims to be the son of God. So he sort of stood there in the garden saying, I am, I am he, I am God. That's what he's stating. And I just kind of thought, if they fully understood that, would they, number one, have arrested him? Would they have continued down that path? If they really understood this was the son of God, would they have still gone on to arrest him? Or would they actually have said, no, that's God, I'm not arresting him. I'm going to leave him well alone. Were they a bit confused? Possibly. A bit like, oh, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. There's kind of a power of God here. Not quite sure. Let's take him away. Let's go and find out what's going on. And there's other accounts, aren't there, where people stoned Jesus for stating this. They threw stones at him and he had to slip away. So it kind of, um, there was a, a very physical and very real response to Jesus uttering these words. Um, so I kind of came to the conclusion, I don't think they did. I don't think the people in that garden at that time, at night time, in the dark, with their torches and swords and clubs and all the rest of it, fully understand exactly what Jesus was stating. Different people have come to different conclusions. Um, I, I'm sticking with the people that kind of basically believe that as we read it, we can see the truth in that. We can see the absolute fact in that. But in the guards, as he uttered those words, there was a physical response. And I know there's times when God's presence come and it knocks me back. I have a physical reaction. I think this was one of those times where Jesus speaks, I am God. His power is there and the people will fall back because there's a sense of power. They don't understand exactly what's going on in that moment, but there is power in the word of God and that's what's going on. But as we read it, we know that Jesus was in control because he is God. We see the words, we see the physical reaction. For me, it's confirmation that Jesus is God, and that is why he was in control of that situation. So, just to recap, we know Jesus was in control because he is God, and we should know that Jesus loves us. It's very important. He's not in control for any reason other than the fact he loves us. Then we get to the last two verses, and it says in verse 10 and 11, Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. Can we all appreciate what's going on here? If we can't, I've got a little bit of a... Simon Peter drew a sword, and he slashed off... Hold on. The right ear of Malchus. Okay, I'm going to be waving this around a lot now. He slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? 
Um, and this is, for me, it's kind of where my application came out of this passage. And this is the bit I spent a long time in. Just to double check, Stuart, what time are we aiming to land? You're out. Um, and again, I kind of, a bit like with the Judas bit of this story, I kind of got into this and started thinking, well, what was going on here? My, my very initial, when I read the passage, when I thought about it, was the silly Simon. Silly Simon didn't understand what Jesus had told him was going to happen, what had to happen, and then he had this silly reaction. And I kind of laughed at him a little bit and thought, ha, ha, how you didn't get what was going on. But then I started thinking, Simon Peter has spent all this time with Jesus. He's given his life up for Jesus. He's left his home. He has followed Jesus. He has given everything to be with him. Jesus is his best friend. There are many elements of what Jesus has done and said that he does understand. He knows that Jesus loves him. He knows the power of Jesus. He has seen the healing. He has seen, he can give testimony to some of the things that Jesus did. He loves him. And if you loved someone that much, even if you knew they had to be arrested for the salvation of all people, could you honestly have kind of gone, all praise Jesus, my best friend, saviour of the world, healer, king, amazing person, please will you arrest him and take him away? I'm so happy you're going to arrest him and punish him and beat him and crucify him. I'm really brilliant. You're fun. I thought, no, I wouldn't. Even if I knew my best friend was being taken away for the right reason, I think, I hope I would have been there. I hope that I would have been a man of action and said, no, don't take him. And this got me thinking. So kind of a personal example. Um, I was going to talk about my wife for a little bit, if you'll forgive me. You know, I, I love Phil, and I want to protect Phil. There's something in me that wants to protect him. She was in a job once, and I, I can't count the number of times that I wanted to go to her employer and say, leave Phil alone. Stop making her go to those meetings. Stop being mean to her. You are being unjust. You are being unfair. That is not a good response of someone in leadership. And I wasn't alone because I used to talk to some of the other partners. And we wanted to go in there and do something. I was desperate to go in there and sort out the situation. Okay? And I thought, if I was that desperate for Phil, who I love a lot, trust me, I do, um, I love Jesus even more. Simon Peter loved Jesus even more. So how natural was his response? And actually, I came to find a bit more respect for him in that sense, that actually he was having a physical, emotional response to his best friend being taken away. Okay? So I thought, that changed my mind a little bit. I've got some respect now, because you responded. You did something. You didn't just stand back and do nothing. You did something. And would I have understood better? Would I have responded in a more controlled manner? Would I have had the guts to stand up and do something? I don't know. Was Simon Peter doubting God, or was he just being human? I don't know. I'm not Simon Peter, and I wasn't there. But actually, as I read his reaction, I think, respect to you for doing something. So my must was that Jesus was in control of the situation because he is God. Our should was to know that Jesus loves us. And our could is to actively trust Jesus for the outcome. So this is our application. If God is in control, he loves us, can we actively trust him? I think 
Oh, people talk about, don't they? Too, mate. I'll put this down and stop waving it at you. Sorry. <laughs> Get a little bit aggressive and excited. Um, I think there are two main reactions, aren't there, to difficult situations. People talk about fight or flight. So two stories from my life just to highlight where I've reacted in that way and then help us hopefully to think about how we're going to react to difficult situations we face. Um, I've never honestly pulled a sword out on someone, I promise that. Um, so fight, let's talk about that. So Simon Peter, his reaction was fight, wasn't it? Jesus is in trouble, I love him, I'm going to fight and chop off somebody's ear. Let's just reenact that again, I've got the right ear. Okay, so... First time Phil and I planted a church. Now, this is the bit where I was practicing this. I was actually crying in my living room, so I'm a very emotional person. I apologize, but I'm going to hold it together today, just like I didn't do on my wedding speech. Um, so the first time we went to plant a church together, we felt called by God. We felt that was the right place for us to be. It was the right place to go. Um, we felt that's what we should be doing. So we left our home church. We went with a group of people from our home church into a church plant. It wasn't this one. Um, and there wasn't a leader, so we brought in a leader from another church, someone we hadn't met before, and we had some prayer meetings, we had some time together, an hour here, an hour there, and then we went into this quite difficult town to go and lead a church together, establish a new church. So there's a group of people with common vision, common values, who loved God. There was a leader who loved God and wanted to lead a church plant, but knew nothing of us, knew nothing of our vision and our values. And we felt very strongly about why we were there in that town, what we wanted to achieve, what we wanted to do for God. And we never quite connected. You can kind of see, can't you? Again, when you look down on a story, as as we read this passage, you can see it's a little bit obvious, can't you? Okay, sometimes that's going to work. Sometimes that will work. But sometimes it's just not going to work. And as you read back on the story of how this church plot went, you had a group of people fighting for what they believed in, you had a guy over here who's a you know, very godly man, but just didn't quite have the same vision, the same heart, didn't do things in the same way we were kind of used to. And you try and open your hearts and open your minds, but it just never quite happened. And it ended up being arguments, quite negative times. We were hurt. I'm sure he was hurt along the way as well. But we, kind of, we were all fighting for what we believed in. Our, our reaction in that was, I want to stand up for why I left my home church. I left my church, I left my friends, I left my hometown, I left my parents. I bought a house in this town because I felt passionate about this and it's all going wrong. So my reaction was to stand up and fight. And there was a meeting one day um, with one of our kind of overseers and God just said to us very clearly, put your sword away, go home. And we did. And it was all brilliant. It was all fine. I mean, working that through was difficult. But God very clearly said to us, put your sword away, go home. And now we're here, and now we're loving life with God. We're doing really well. We're very happy. The town that we were in, there is a really active, vibrant church plant led by a different group of people doing amazing things. They're seeing healing, salvation, growth. They are seeing people fall in love with Jesus, which is what we wanted to do at the time. It just didn't work in that situation. And how many times did God probably say to me in the middle of my anger, in the middle of my fighting, go home and rest, recuperate, fight another battle on another day? How many times did he say that to me? I don't know. But I know 
when he finally said it and we did it, it brought about that restoration. It brought about a good future. I'm not saying fighting's wrong, but I'm saying that in that case, I don't think fighting was the right response because along the way, I didn't listen to God and I didn't hear him say, go home. And when we heard that and when we listened, things started going much better, which tells me that God is in control. He does love me and I can trust him for the future. Talk a bit more trust in a minute. I'll give you a flight example, and then we're past all the emotional stuff, and it'll be absolutely fine. Um, so we're back in our home church. Um, there's this lovely couple called Melanie and Stuart who have come to join our home church, and we're in a life group together. I think we're in a life group, or just a group of friends. Um, oh yeah, of course we were friends. Sorry. <laughs> and and we went away for a weekend together. It was somebody's birthday. It was a whole bunch of us, adults, kids. We stayed in a big house. We ate together. We had fun together. We had arguments together. It, it was lovely. It was brilliant. We had random children jumping on us in the morning because they thought it was somebody else's bedroom and all sorts. It was it was great. But there was a, again a moment where we were walking, I think we went to visit a stately home, and we were walking through a garden with big trees, and there was lots of tree climbing and lots of fun. And I was walking along with Stuart, and we were talking about church, we were talking about the future, we were talking about our hearts. And I knew at that moment that Stuart and I would be in a church plant together at some point in the future. I knew. There was too many yes moments, amen moments. Brilliant, I love that idea. I hadn't thought of that. Yes, I want to follow you. I want to go with you. And I knew... In my heart of hearts, I can remember that moment. So, of course, when God spoke really clearly to Stuart Mellon about coming to Birmingham, what did we do? We said no. We said no. We, and for me, this is kind of an example of flight. We said, Birmingham. We've not thought about Birmingham. Um, I've never been there. It's a city. It doesn't really appeal. It's, it's not something that fills me with excitement. Why Birmingham? Not sure. And we let that get in the way, and we stepped away from that situation. We watched these guys get prayed for. We watched other people put up their hands and say, I will go with you, Melanie and Stuart. I will go with you. Joe Davis was there, weren't you? Saying, yes, I will go. And Phil and I were there saying, no, it's not right for us at the moment. Not right for us at the moment. And we went through it. And these guys were leaving. They'd probably left at that point. And there was something in Phil and I that just said, we've missed something. We've missed something of God. So, what's our response? Our response is to know that Jesus is in control. We know that Jesus loves us. And we wanted to actively trust him. So we had to do something. So it was around about the time we used to go to a thing called Shuttleworth, which is like Catalyst. Brilliant thing to go to. Lots of input, lots of God, lots of power of God, lots of Holy Spirit, lots of ministry. If you've not booked in yet, get in there and book. Well done, they're amazing. Um, So, great events. Shuttleworth was similar to that. And Phil and I got babysitters for the weekend. We said, we're going to go to Shuttleworth. We're going to give this weekend to God. And we prayed in the car on the way up. Lord, we feel like we've missed something. We feel like we've missed something. We don't think we're in the right place. What is it you want us to do? I think it was a brave prayer at the time, but it was an honest prayer. And God spoke to us. We asked him to speak. He spoke. doesn't always do it. He did. Um, he spoke to us in the worship. He spoke to us through every single preach. He spoke to us when we went to a children's ministry workshop thing. We were going there to find out how to be better parents. God said to us, go to Birmingham. Um, And actually, for me, he didn't actually say go to Birmingham. He said, follow Melanie and Stuart. 
and I felt really called that sometimes God calls a particular prophet or a leader to go to a certain place and he calls other peoples to follow those people. And for me, it was about following the leader that I should have followed in the first place. And there was, <laughs> in hindsight, quite a funny moment. where, And it wasn't the fact that in the seminar they actually went through and said, oh, we've got preachers, we've got this, we've got kids workers, but we don't have any worship leaders. We really need some worship leaders. But that almost didn't register. It was the moment where Stuart walked up to us one evening in the worship and said, look, I'm really sorry if this is out of order. I want you to reconsider coming. And what was my response? (laughs) I burst out crying. (laughs) Um, At least it was a response. Um, Because by that point, we'd realized, we'd realized what we should be doing to follow God. Um, And yeah, I'm a a bit of a baby, sorry. Um, And I cried. Um, So, in a good way, Jesus was in control. Jesus loves me. I can actively trust him. We asked in the fighting situation, I had a response. God said, put your sword down, go home. I'm going to take you somewhere different. In this case, we said, where should we be? God said, follow. We said, yes, please, after I've wiped away all my tears of joy and everything else just coming on me. He was in control. I trusted God. And it's his life, isn't it? It's his life for all of us. We all face difficult situations. We find ourselves in situations that are tough. I've, I've been quite stressed at work recently. I know as a Christian, I, I kind of feel like I shouldn't be stressed. I shouldn't be worried because God is in control. But the more you're in that situation, the more the work piles on, um, the more I have to do it. You know, balancing home life, church responsibility, um, school life, working, marking, planning, Um, all those kind of things, everything kind of builds up, doesn't it? And you get lost in this kind of weight of work. And it's the very thing I spoke about two two terms ago, which is a bit embarrassing, really. But it comes back, and it starts piling up on top of you. Um, I'm not going to look at them, because I'll start crying again. But someone in my life group was praying for me. Life group, awesome place to go, be open, share, get prayed for, get in a life group, get alongside people, because we can kind of connect at a deeper level. Um, And this person said they were going to pray for me. And they prayed for me for a number of weeks. And they brought me a few scriptures. One of them was, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, whose thoughts are fixed on you. And that first of all spoke to me. I'd I'd got overwhelmed by the weight of everything I was going through and had taken my eyes off Jesus, off God. God knows the outcome. He is in control yet I'd stopped watching him. I'd kind of gone over here and tried to deal with my workload. Then I'd come over here and tried to deal with a bit of home life about being a good father. I'd come over here and said, right, I've got to lead worship now. And I was slashing away with this sword, trying to do everything for myself, but I'd taken my eyes off of Jesus. I hadn't sat down and said to him, help, help me, help me, Lord. And this person spoke to me about the, the peaks and the troughs, the valleys, and I really felt like I was in a valley, and I'd kind of let all this stuff burden on top of me. But as soon as I started fixing my eyes back on Jesus and saying, help me, give me strength, show me what it is you want me to do in these situations, um, again, things get lifted. He takes burdens off. He helps me to organize my priorities. He shows me where I should be, what I should be doing. In some cases, Jesus says to me, put down that sword. You don't need to fight that battle. I'm, I'm terrible for this, and I'm going to put it right over there. You know, I want to solve every problem. Every problem I come across, and this is my problem at work as a manager, I want to solve every problem. What I'm having to learn is to say, 
there's the problem, you go and solve it. There's another problem, that's your responsibility to go and solve it and to back out. And I was taking everything for myself. So I had to, again, put my sword down and stop reacting in that way. In some other situations where I'd let that burden me, I had to pick some other stuff up. You know, with my family, I think I'd probably neglected some of the aspects of being a father and a husband. And I had to pick those things up and refocus my attention on those things as God sort of showed me what I need to do to be a better husband um, and a better father. But it's Jesus, because Jesus is in control, Jesus loves me, and I can trust him for the outcome. So we are coming into land now, so I hope that's about right. Um, It's the homework, it's the application. What am I saying to you from these stories? Um, What am I saying to you from this passage? I look at these characters, I look at Simon Peter, and I see his response. His response was to fight. He did something. He didn't sit on his backside and do nothing. He did something. And in that case, Jesus said, put it away. That wasn't the right thing to do at that time. Sometimes God will call us to fight. Sometimes he'll call us to flight. Jesus did it himself. He left the temple so that he wasn't stoned to death because it wasn't the time for him to die. Um, Other times he will call us to um, mediate, to help people, to pray for people. But it's always about seeking God. And I cannot promise to you that every situation I find myself in, be it financial, relational, health, work, family, I can't promise you that every time I'm going to ask Jesus before I respond. I can't promise you that because I'm human. I'm not strong enough to, I'm not patient enough and kind of, I'm, I'm just not that person. But I can promise you that I will keep meeting with Jesus and I will keep lifting up the things I go through in life and I will keep asking him, am I doing the right thing or do I need to go in a different direction? So if the band want to come up and get ready, am I too early? Um, I guess what I'd love you to do this week is to, if you've picked up anything of use from that, brilliant. If you haven't, just ignore me and pretend I was never here. Um, But just to get before Jesus again, to get before him. And if you're going through any of these situations, get someone in your life group, a friend, someone close to you, praying for you, seeking God for you. Because sometimes in that valley, you can't see what it is Jesus is trying to say. Jesus very clearly said to Simon Peter, put your sword away, save it for another day. Okay? In some situations, we can't hear from God as clearly because we're in the middle of that situation. So get someone else to pray for you. It doesn't have to be there and then. Get them to seek God for you and to bring back to you. And then weigh very carefully what they bring back. It's not always going to be easy. I felt at first that I was almost being a bit rebuked for not spending time with Jesus. That was my initial human response. But it wasn't. It was about loving Jesus. It was about them loving me and them bringing me help. Um, So I pray that this week we can kind of do that. Grab someone this morning if you want to pray with someone. Um, do it in your life groups. If you're not in a life group, talk to John and George, Melanie Stewart, find out about life group. Um, but I just encourage you to be a people of action. Let's not, let's not spend our whole life sat around doing nothing. There's plenty of stuff God has called us to do. Let's be people of action. So don't be afraid of picking up the sword. Don't be afraid of running away. Action is good. But the more time we spend with Jesus, the more likely it is that our action is going to back up what Jesus wants for us. Um, so yeah, I'm going to pray and then I'll hand back over to the band. Yeah, Jesus, I, I thank you that you are in control. 
that the world is yours. I thank you that you love us, and I thank you that you watch over us. I thank you you were there before, and I thank you you're going to be there at the end. You are in everything. Everything is yours, and you love us. You love us to bits, otherwise you wouldn't have gone through what you went through on the cross for our salvation. And I pray, Lord, as a church, we'll be a church of action. I pray that in that, as we dwell in you, as we spend time in you, you will guide us and bring us direction and show us where we need to be for you, Lord. I pray we will have a response, we will have an action, but it will be a measured response and action based upon your word, your life, and your power, Lord. And, yeah, I pray we'll move together as a church on a mission for you, Lord, helping each other, praying, bringing words of wisdom, and bringing your word into the lives of other people, Lord. But ultimately, thank you that we can trust you. You are God. You love us. You are in control. Thank you, Jesus.